Hi, I am the legendary Pearl Bear. Welcome to True Crime Uncensored on Outlaw Radio USA.com. Howard Lapidus, manager of the stars here. That I am. Mark C.G. Boyer, our fact checker. I am your moderator host, living legend, so, Pearl Bear. So. Spent 25 years at CNN, so he gets a medal. John. Yes. Oh, you there? I'm here. Can Good. you hear me? Go, thank the Lord. Hey, before CNN, you work at CBN? That's right. How was that? Well, it was an interesting experience because when uh, shortly after I got there, my boss decided to run for president. That would be Pat when, Robertson, maybe? That would be, that's correct. And so that made for, you know, some very interesting uh, daily conversations in the newsroom about how we should handle things. So, and, so, uh, so, so let's talk about that. What, what were those conversations like and, what, and how did you decide to handle things? Well, I mean, fortunately, I had a news director who was sane, and uh, and so th- it 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 uh, it didn't get nearly as acrimonious as it could have. But uh, but the 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 thrust of most of the conversations had to do with, you know, gee, the liberal media is uh, spinning the story this way, therefore we need to spin it to the right. And my argument was. Two wrongs don't make a right. You yeah. play it straight and let the let the facts speak for themselves. So, as a Gee, you sound like a real journalist. Yeah, you are a real journalist. So there's no there's no question about that. But to, to be in that position as a real journalist, you must have had some interesting times on the way home and thinking about what you, your future looked like. Well, I think yeah, exactly. I mean, when I went there, I I actually kind of figured that uh, you know that was sort of uh, a point of no return that. Uh, you know, it was going to be perceived as the lunatic fringe, and yet I felt that I had an opportunity to, you know, tell stories that were more in-depth. But to my surprise and relief, um, when it did come time for me to finally say, this is just, I just can't do this anymore, and I applied to CNN, CNN, to their credit, didn't consider me to be damaged goods. And so uh, they put me in a position where I could certainly do a lot of damage, and uh, uh, it, they kept me there for 25 years. So I guess it, uh, it, it looked bleak at times, but it didn't turn out so bad. Back to the running for president part, if, you, if, if I may just dwell on that for a second. Did, sure. did they think behind closed doors, and you were behind closed doors, did they think that he had even a prayer? <laughs> no pun intended. <laughs> Um, th- actually, sure, they did. I, I, I mean, he actually did quite well uh, in Michigan, which was um, a uh, uh, an election or a, a primary before Iowa. You know, he was very astute politically, and I or Michigan was so off the political radar that no one expected that he would make a dent there, and he did well, and so that made Iowa much more. Uh, contentious. Um, uh, from observing him up close, it seemed to me that he was qualified to be president just because he was knowledgeable. His father was a U.S. senator. You know, he he knew the system. But uh, there were two problems. One was the PTL scandal. The, uh, uh, the you know the televangelism right. scandals hit right about that time, and he was in a sense tainted with the same brush, guilt, guilt by association. And the other thing is that I think temperamentally 
he was used to being sort of a benevolent dictator and not used to being questioned uh, uh, copiously by uh, uh, aggressive reporters and probably would have had a contentious relationship with Congress. How did that go uh, behind closed doors, the contentiousness with reporters? You know, I did a really hard-hitting interview with him, and to his credit, he, I mean, he was he was sweating during the interview. It was about a 20-minute interview. Um, and my boss, the news director, put the interview under lock and key until it was ready to go because we weren't so much concerned about what Pat would do. Pat was pretty, uh, uh, you know, he's a, he was a big boy and could handle the, the tough questions, but we were concerned about the people around him who might find a way to uh, have the tape get lost. So Ooh. it's often more of a problem with the zealots that so are around the what was on that? What was on that tape that if you were trying to lose something, what would that be? Well, I think that, it, I think that what the people would have been upset about in, uh, uh, at CBN was that in the interview, uh, I got him to admit that he basically felt he he felt if if god it's been a long time ago now but as i remember the interview what he revealed is that he was using hurricane gloria which was heading right toward virginia beach he was using it as sort of what they call in evangelical christianity a fleece in other words lord if you turn this hurricane away then i'll see that as a sign from you that i should run for president and then the hurricane um, turned away from Virginia Beach, and so he saw that as a green light from the Almighty. Um, to most unchurched or uh, uh, people who are not necessarily that ensconced in that kind of religious philosophy, that's weird. And so, yeah, but it was going to uh, go to sea anyway at some point. Come on. <laughs> well, you know, I mean, uh, hurricanes do what they do, but um, you know, I'm just saying that uh, they would, they might have been a little uncomfortable with, in a sense, God talk that the rest of the country might not have understood. Do you see any parallels between that campaign and Trump's campaign? <laughs> yes, I do. <laughs> I do. I uh, although I think that Trump is, uh, and of course now I'm I'm not speaking as a reporter because I retired from CNN, you know, three and a half four, uh, years ago, um, so I'm not covering the election. But you know, my perception as a news consumer is that um, you know Trump is in a sense you know Robertson on steroids, and you know it has it has gotten way beyond. Because, I mean, Robertson was politically astute, and back in those days, he was at least much more calm in the way he discussed the issues. Now, you can quibble about, you know, how arch-conservative he was, but Trump is just off the charts. He doesn't have political experience. He doesn't have an acquaintance uh, with the truth, and uh, he's not effectively being held accountable uh, in many ways. So, you know, this election is like none other that we've seen in recent memory. Yeah, it does seem a bit peculiar to me. <laughs> Do you find it, uh, you as, a, as, a, as, a, as a professional journalist, and you'll always be one, um, you retire until you're blue in the face, try that, but you are one, you know that. 
Um, well, I've got the I've got the I've got the general um, knowledge about the the principle of being even-handed and fair, but I'm not in fact-finding mode these days. Right, understood, understood. But 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 you're sitting on the sidelines watching this. Do you, do you feel that uh, you're not in the you're not really in the game? But as a as an observer, um, and I, I I too am sitting on the sidelines, uh, uh, but. I'm reclining on the sidelines. Well, I mean, to, to make things to, to totally transparent, I have a client that works for CNN, and I deal with CNN quite often. So, so uh, you know, I'm involved with them. But it's it's uh, really something to watch this campaign, both sides of it. Uh, just sit in the middle and watch both sides of it. Uh, if it had nothing to do with the future of our children, it would be easier to watch. Uh, but mm-hmm. but as a uh, as a professional, it's a fascinating study. Fascinating is is an understatement. It's it's fascinating. It's compelling. It is frightening, and uh, the stakes are incredibly high. And uh, it's it's very troubling. Under troubling and frightening, what are you? <laughs> Would you some what subtext y'all, there? What y'all talking about? <laughs> what you talking about, Willis? <laughs> well, I mean, it's troubling because I go back to Trump's. Um, lack of, of familiarity with the truth. He doesn't care about the truth. Uh, I mean, the perfect example is the whole birther issue. You know, he put the story to rest, but he's the one who started it, and yet he's accusing Hillary of starting it, and, uh, you know, that's just bizarre. Well, enjoying a fine cigar yesterday with our executive producer, Magic Matt Allen, um, the, the topic came up is Trump put all the media together uh, to talk about the birther issue, which he uh, dedicated about 40 seconds to. 18. <laughs> okay, close. And, and, um, and then the uh, next half hour or the previous whatever, it was a uh, infomercial for his hotel. Yeah, and, and yeah, and, and I mean, I heard a soundbite from John King, uh, mm-hmm. which I think was pretty ac- ac- uh, accurate and, you know, edgy for John King to say, we got played again. Um, it's 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 one of the things that was so frustrating to me near my the end of my tenure at CNN is that I mean my wife probably said it best the CNN logo should be a dead horse um, because everything is breaking news and when everything is breaking news nothing is breaking news it's like the Malaysian airliner it's oh, still missing breaking news uh, yeah. you know, come on it's getting ridiculous it used to be back in my early childhood before I became part of this whole mess was was that if if they interrupted you know howdy doody or interrupted anything with breaking news your bl- blood turned to ice because you didn't know what the hell it was going so to be. Oh, yeah. Howdy I mean, it, was like, it was the nuclear attack. When, yeah. when, 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 guys, when Howdy Doody was interrupted, I lost my skull. Come on. <laughs> it had nothing to do with nuclear attack. It had to do with, hey, where's my show? Where's my show, <laughs> damn it? Exactly. Hey, I was right. watching when Pinky Lee had his heart attack on live TV. That's because he saw you. That's <laughs> so he could... Uh, reminds me of that. Honestly, Never mind. did, did you see Pinky Lee go down? Yeah. Well, they, boy, they cut away from him real fast yeah. and put on a uh, a 16 millimeter film about agriculture in the Midwest. Saw <laughs> lots of tractors. And they more, just grabbed whatever they could grab. There were more heart attacks from people watching that than Pinky Lee. <laughs> That's you true. Were, I don't remember that. You must be older than me. I am. 
<laughs> Burl is the oldest person in broadcasting. <laughs> well, I do remember Pinky Lee, so uh, I can't... You know, I can't he did skip and run and bring him. lots of fun to every he and she. Oh, I just God. thought I would mention <laughs> that. Stop it <laughs> His real name was Pincus Leth. And uh, he was anyone, on the vaudeville circuit. If anyone out there is listening, please rescue me. <laughs> <laughs> Hang on, Mark. We were talking about Pincus Leff. And Pincus Leff... Leff... Leff. That too. Uh, Pincus Leff was a... a, a, a uh, one of those. One of your countrymen. Yeah, where's your patriotism, yeah. Mark? Oh, times are tough all over. Well, after uh, when you were at CBN, you were White House, White Horse, White House correspondent. What the heck is it like working out of the White House? Well, um, that was interesting. It was the last three years of Reagan, and um, it was one of those. Uh, I mean, that was the height of the Cold War, and I can remember Reagan in the briefing room, and I'm in you know one of the probably the fifth row back or so, and I'm thinking, you know, there are people who want to kill this guy, and I'm sort of you know, collateral potential collateral damage here. Um, it was it was really interesting to be up close and see it from behind the scenes. And uh, the thing that surprised me was how oh contentious the relationship was between the White House press corps and the president's chief spokesman. Most of the White House briefings at the time were not um, um, broadcast live. And so reporters were a little more uh, edgy. Uh, um, you know, they, they, it was it was just it was very contentious. Chad, when, when I found out I was going to talk to you, I was excited about asking one particular question, and that is, if the president wants a cheeseburger at three in the morning, can he get it? Yes. <laughs> That's all I need to know. That's all I need to know. And any cheeseburger equivalent, blonde, brunette, redhead. <laughs> Is that part true? Yeah, oh, I, would, okay. I would think so. If I was president, Dambo better be. Well, the only reason guys want to become president is for the women. Come on. Same <clears> reason <throat> they become rock and roll players. That's, a, that's an interesting comment you make about uh, being in the press corps and worrying about your safety. You uh, You picked this up for your new book, didn't you? That's interesting that you would bring that up. Yeah. Well, he does things like he, he likes to kiss um, the ass segue. of the guest. Excellent segue. Excuse me, that's yeah. our job, um, Howard. The the first scene in my latest novel uh, takes place in the White House briefing room. Uh, my protagonist, it's her first day on the job at uh, the Associated Press. She's trying to fake the confidence that she doesn't feel. And all of a sudden, she is thrust into a major international story when the White House is attacked. Well, it, it being that Mark uh, ruined all the questions I had on follow-up on the cheeseburger, <laughs> and, uh, and 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 gleefully segued into your book, um, can you kind of give us an overview? Because it's it's fiction. We don't normally deal with fiction. It, it's fiction, but there's a lot of truth to it as well. Any author will tell you that they draw from personal experience. And so since I covered the White House, I draw upon, you know, that experience. Um, it has drones in it, which is topical. It's not something that, uh, that I know a lot about. I mean, I don't have a personal drone or anything like that, although a drone in every garage is one of the, uh, 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 one of the subplots to, uh, to the story. And then the real personal part is the fatal heroin overdose that my son experienced 
five years ago. And so I take that story and roll it into the the latest novel as as another subplot. So it's, you know, this book really is about drones, drugs, and journalism. Wow, now there's a combination. So there goes sex, drugs, and rock and roll. Those days are over now. It's drones. Okay, let me <laughs> oh, get this they'll never, those, drug, those days will never be over. Not as long as I have a memory. Well, you came up through those days because I can tell uh, you came up about the same day I did. I was, I was a disc jockey when the oldies were newies. <laughs> Where'd you play the hits? Well, let's see. I started out in La Crosse, Wisconsin, uh, at a small station right along the Mississippi River. Went to school at uh, Madison, Wisconsin, at the university there, and was at uh, a student radio station. And then when uh, I when I was in the army, I was at the American Forces Network and stationed in uh, Frankfurt, Germany. And then when I got out. I went back to Madison, Wisconsin to finish my degree and worked at least for a couple of years in radio before I made the transition to television. So the time in radio was from about 1968 until about 1975 or six. Wow, those were glory days. They were, and they were, you know, they were exactly the same dates that uh, that I did that. But but it's it's um, interesting. How did you end up in the army while you were going to school? Boy, that's that's the $64,000 question, because I was wondering, what am I doing in the Army? Yeah, I, I would imagine school? so. Yeah, well, it was one of the the main reasons is they had a thing called the draft. Yep. And uh, it was a lottery system, and if your number was below 150, the chances are you were going to get drafted. That's correct. What my was, number you, was, what, what was My it? number was 14. Oh! You're talking to 327 you, over here. Uh, see, I hate you. But, uh, <laughs> I'm still accusing. I went to Canada for 10 years, and I'm being accused by everybody here of uh, evading the draft, which didn't happen. Oh, I well, this no, everywhere. not if you had a number that high, because you probably weren't going to get drafted anyway. Explain <laughs> to these people that I had a number that I was in, in the rocking chair. There's no way they could get me. They were after yeah, me, though. you were safe. You well, were pretty safe. I was but, safe. Uh, you must have not felt safe or you wouldn't have gone. Where to Canada? Right. I know. No, I, I went to Canada about a year after the draft. The, uh, the I went through two lotteries. Then I went to Canada. And the way the lottery okay. worked the second time is you had to go through 365 numbers and then another 327 numbers. There's no way they were getting me, and 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 I knew that, so I had no fear whatsoever. So and, why'd you and, go? Why? Did, because I had a. The, you want to know why I went? Because I was yeah. in radio, okay, and he'd <laughs> <And it> already <laughs> burned every bridge in America. I had done that. No, <laughs> but, but there was there was a girl who lived in Toronto. That there I was, you go. Okay. Now I, we're getting I, it. There you have it. Okay. Yeah. That's why yeah. I went. Gotcha. Where so, is she okay. now? Um, she's still there. <laughs> I was going to say, how did it work out with the girl? I saw her once in the ten years that I was there. Once. <laughs> that was enough, huh? That, that was it. You know, I realized well, enough for uh, her. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, you got that one right, uh, Captain Journalism. You, 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 you really did. You absolutely did. Well, I was uh, I was fortunate in my journalism uh, indoctrination of Bill Shadell from ABC. Of course, you would would hang out with Fred Friendly and all those guys. He was uh, he was my journalism prof at the University of Washington. 
A great guy, of course, very knowledgeable. And to tell you what a great guy he was, I was a freshman. He was teaching a graduate class, graduate level class, uh, on the responsibility of uh, journalism and news to self-police and make sure you were being fair and all that stuff. And I signed, it was only 12 people in the class. I signed up for it as a freshman. And uh, I was accepted, strangely enough. About two weeks into the class, he pulls me aside and says, I know you're not supposed to be here, but I'm not going to tell anybody. <laughs> well, there you go. Which I thought was really cool. And again, I got a good grade in the class, too. Let me be very clear, as I am every week, because I'm attacked, and I probably will be attacked in the next show again uh, for uh, being unpatriotic. It's very clear that if I was drafted... I moved to Canada anyway, guys. <laughs> uh, so, um, no, if I was drafted, I would have served. It's that simple. I would have right. served. And I thought about it. So did you get to Vietnam? Well, the interesting thing there is that um, when, I was, when I got the number 14 in the lottery, I went to my dad, who was on the draft board, and I thought that was going to work. And he said, hell no, I'm not going to get you out of this, but uh, I'll give you some advice. Talk to a recruiter and find out what your options are. And I discovered that there was such a thing as military journalism. So I enlisted to avoid the draft. And I'd been in the service about a year. I was at the Defense Information School at uh, Fort Ben Harrison in Indianapolis when I got orders to Vietnam. And that was a real faith crisis. And I thought, for sure, it's all over and um, had a long talk with my parents and came to the conclusion that I wasn't really a conscientious objector. Uh, and so I accepted the orders to Vietnam. And two weeks before I was to ship out, my orders were suddenly changed to Germany. And I spent the next two and a half years at the headquarters of uh, the American Forces Network in Europe. It was just fortuitous that Nixon at the time was choosing to um, wind down the war. For for whatever reason, um, well, well, to get us out, yeah, to get us out, yeah. okay. Well, and to change the color of the bodies. That too. Fifty-five thousand American lives. Do I have that about right? Uh, at, at least that, possibly fifty-six. Yeah. yeah, that was a fun time, kids. And uh, that was that was awful. It yep. was awful. Uh, because it was really, it was like the country was tearing itself apart. It was ripping. Um, you it, had it, it, you it, had LBJ deciding not to run, and uh, at the end of March of '68, right? Uh, just about a month later, uh, two months later, uh, Martin Luther King was assassinated. A month after, or two months after that, uh, Bobby Kennedy was assassinated. It was, and there were riots in the streets. It was much more violent and much more polarized than it is today. It's polarized now, but not like there that. wasn't the internet. Not, not people like that. now can vent their spleen. If we had the internet then, um, it would have been extraordinarily interesting. Um, I think it would have been less violent, quite quite frankly, because I think that um, people felt disenfranchised. They, they felt they didn't have a voice, and that the only way they could speak their mind was to throw bricks and and uh, set fire to buildings. Were you ever and involved in any violence? I was I was only involved as a reporter covering it. I never took part because I really honestly could see both sides. My parents 
were Nixon Republicans. My dad was a World War II vet. I respected my parents. I loved my parents, and I, I thought that they were honorable people. Mm-hmm. And then at the University of Wisconsin, I encountered an entirely different way of looking at things. And so the reason, really, the literal reason I chose journalism was I didn't really understand what was going on, and I felt that I didn't know enough and that journalism was the place to be in order to find out and to understand all sides of the issue. Did you, I want to, want to bring up something. I was watching, I was watching CNN uh, recently. And you know how they'll bring up these various talking heads, uh, so-called experts on things. Uh, so like they might ask Howard a question or something. And they had on someone from the Center for Western Journalism. I about dropped my cupcake. <laughs> what flavor? <laughs> Red velvet. I go, what the hell? is this person doing on CNN? Uh, I trust, hopefully, maybe you're familiar with the Center for Western Journalism, which is, uh, they would not know journalistic ethics if it walked up and bit them on the ass on Main Street. I was stunned. I was amazed. I mean, it's a gas and thunderstruck that this person is a talking head when... And then when they opened their mouth, they didn't say anything rational, of course. I am really troubled by the fact if I do a search on a particular topic, uh, I will get the same fake story from the Center for Western Journalism, uspatriot.com, and several others about a whole page. I'd have to go about three pages in on Google before I get to a reputable news source. Mm-hmm. And all of those sites, from what I, my research shows, are owned by the same individual or the same consortium of individuals. So they just, you know, blank carpet bomb, uh, you know, false headlines, sometimes even false pictures. And, of course, there's no law against that. We have freedom of speech, freedom of the press. Uh, hold that for one second real quick. Last question on Vietnam. Did you see any friends of yours from high school come back in body bags? Yes. Try and explain that to somebody now. They don't show us that. Uh, it's it's uh... it's well. I mean, look, it's still it's still happening, just not on the scale it uh, it was. I mean, at the height of the war, the Vietnam War, two hundred kids a week were being killed, and the wars in Afghanistan and Iraq, um, the death toll is nothing near that. But that tell that to a parent. Um, it's 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 terrible, uh, no matter what the scale. Why, why were I, why were we in Vietnam? Well, I mean, it was the Cold War. It was an extension of the of World War II. Communism was the was the big uh, enemy, and this was uh, uh, a fight over uh, the spread of communism in uh, uh, in Southeast Asia. But the the World War II soldiers who were fighting that war didn't understand that the dynamics were different, and it wasn't a World War II kind of war. It was, to a certain extent, an indigenous uh, uh, civil rights kind of thing. Or, uh, uh, I mean, it was it was just it was different. It was still ideological, but the the issues were much more local, and the the argument that was uh, pitched in order to get the the draft going and to get the U.S. involved was the domino theory, that if one country falls, then another, and another, and pretty soon communism has taken over the world. I can tell, the, the, I, I can tell John, that you didn't really buy into the domino theory. How would you argue the other side of that? 
Well, I, I can't say that I, I didn't buy into it. I, I think that my my opinions changed over time, and, I, and arguably my dad changed as well. I mean, you know, there was what they called the generation gap, and my parents and I were at, at odds for most of the time because they really bought into that stuff, and the more I... Uh, the more I read about it, and the more we saw that the reporting from Vietnam, or that the the uh, that the reporting from Vietnam was at odds with what the government was saying was going on, um, <clears throat> because they had this this uh, this fiction that they needed to spin in order to justify, you know, the continued war effort. I I I could I understood the domino theory, uh, and. Uh, because communism is certainly not the same as freedom, and so I understand the the issue. But the the times were changing, and uh, uh, factually, it wasn't holding up uh, to justify the the numbers of deaths that were happening a week. Uh, obviously, you don't have to answer this question, but who, 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 I'm going to ask it anyway. Who'd you go for in the '68 election? I was too young to vote. Uh-huh. He's not too young by, to play the hits, by, though. By, 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 uh, but I'll, I'll be honest with you. I, I would have voted. A, I, you were young by a year, right? Yeah, well, uh, I, the first election I was old enough to vote in was 72. If I could have voted in 68, I'll be honest, I would have voted for Nixon um, because I wasn't hadn't really been exposed to, you know, the alternate thoughts that I learned at the University of Wisconsin. By 72, uh things were a lot different and so I voted for McGovern in 72. Yeah, by, by the way that's the first election I voted in and I I was the other guy that voted for McGovern. <laughs> <laughs> I was voting for Adlai Stevenson. <laughs> nice try for governor. <laughs> yeah. Hey, I want to make a deal with you. All right? Yeah. On October 1st, which is the release date of your book. Will you come back on the show so we can spend more time talking about your books? Because we're having a great that time. That would be wonderful. Oh, yeah, yeah I do that because I don't want to stop talking about this period of time because it's uh, such an extraordinary period. And to have been a journalist um, then, uh, you were, again, you and I are probably tied um, age-wise. Uh, you know, I, I want to get into it a little bit more, but first... We're going to take a 60-second break. But write that on your calendar, October 1st, okay, John? We're going to take a 60-second break. We'll be right back on True Crime Uncensored on Outlaw Radio. Yes. If you own your own cell phone, we know you do. Or you want to be on Flash Friday with uh, me? Well, well, then you better uh, turn your computers. You know what a computer is, right, dear? Yeah, dear. <laughs> yes, you do. Listen to Outlaw Radio every Saturday, 3B. You won't regret it. Love you, ladies. Where do they go for the app? Yeah, how do they find the app? Well, I don't want to mention that because it would take away from my... Isn't it RadioLoyalty.com? Yeah, it could be. Oh, 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 boy, here goes Matt. It's free. Boy, it is free. It is free. Yes, as long as you flash your movies on Flash Friday. Have another sip of wine, Tom. Bash. Yeah, just me. Punch in out with radio when you get to Radio Loyalty. I know. That's it. 
1980s, there were two ways of making big bucks in the Big Apple. Either became a drug dealer or you robbed drug dealers. Michael Dowd and Ken Urell decided to do both. And they weren't worried about the cops because they were the cops. Drug dealers with a badge, criminals in a squad car. This led to the biggest drug corruption scandal in the history of the contemporary NYPD. And you're saying, why isn't there a book detailing the entire inside story? October 25th, there will be Betrayal in Blue by yours truly, Burl Bear, Frank Gerardo Jr., and Ken Urell, the second most corrupt cop in the history of the NYPD. PD, based on his memoir and tons of exclusive interviews, including interviews with the head of the Dominican drug cartel, who kindly called us to give us more background information. Book comes out October 25th, Betrayal in Blue. Yes, of course. Burl Bearer. I've known a few writers who were rogues and vagabonds. And I'm Roger Moore. I didn't supply the microphone. Back to True Crime Uncensored with Burl Bear and Howard Lapidus featuring Mark C.G. Boyer and sometimes Marie Mackey. Sometimes Marie, she has a, she and her Hooters haven't been in here for what three four years. But that's the first time she actually got mentioned in, in about two and a half years. Yeah. Uh, author and writing coach John, Mac, pronounce your last name for me because I keep messing it up. Dedacus. Dedacus. That's not really your name though. Originally, it got changed, <laughs> right? I would, you can't make that kind of thing up. It was Dukakis. Uh, yeah, it was, it, it. I thought it was Dukakis. That would have been. Really no, cool. that was another guy. How'd you no, wind up with the name Dedacus? What's that? How did you wind up with that last name? Well, uh, my dad was born in Greece, came over to Ellis Island in uh, 1913, I think. Um, uh, from what my cousin Betty uh, Gannis tells me, uh, the name was spelled entirely differently, and then they uh, uh, anglicized it, I guess you could say. Um, anything that ends with an A-K-I-S, I'm told, originates on the island of Crete. That's not where my dad was born. He was born more near uh, Corinth. And then in uh, the Chicago phone book where they settled, uh, it, the name was D-E, small d, A-K-I-S. But there was a typo in the phone book, and they capitalized the second D as well. And my grandpa said, that's cool. Let's keep it. I must have said that in I don't know how he would have said so, that. So, so you like that uh, that double capital. That's very cool. Yeah. You know, everybody thinks it's French now. <laughs> now, there's a friend of mine whose last name is De Batista, and they were very uh-huh. proud of the name until they did a search on why they had the name De Batista, and it was because there was a soldier named Batista who was uh, knocking up all these women. <laughs> and so De Batista... Damn good reason why the mics went out because nobody. I can, yeah. (laughs) Oh, there you are. Uh, There there I am. Uh, Okay, Uh, getting back to your brilliant career, and uh... (laughs) I hear that. I hear that sarcasm. Wolf was great. He is a journalist's journalist. Um, he's very, he's a lot looser, a lot funnier when he's not on camera. And 
he quotes his dad a lot, and his dad has has really uh, some Yogi Berra isms. Like for instance, um, he'll say, as my father David uh, Blitzer used to say, "Rich or poor, it's good to have money." Oh, is it a buffalo saying? Well, then uh, probably Wolf's dad is the one who originated it. Tim Russert. Yeah, Tim was, was a big-time Buffalo. Uh, and Buffalo, a journalistic uh, hub. What can I tell you? That's right. I would never have envisioned Buffalo as a journalistic hub. Yeah, people don't envision Buffalo as a city that's much of anything, and it is. It's quite something. <laughs> and Wolf, I'm sure, filled you in on that. Oh, absolutely. Because anybody that comes from there is, uh, is well, a, my, a true my ambassador. Wife- my wife used to teach school in Buffalo at Casey Middle School. Wow, I didn't even know what that is. Uh, they yeah. didn't have middle schools when you were there, Howard. Yeah, they had... Uh, junior highs. Yeah, that's, I went to junior high, that's right. I went to uh, Benjamin Franklin Junior High School, ladies and gentlemen. And who cares? <laughs> ben does. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. He was your instructor. Wolf would go, oh, over there. You lived with the Goyam. I see. Okay, I get it. <laughs> Things are tough all over. Yes. I noticed you, uh, in addition to the, your, your brilliant books, and you have one coming out October 1st, we're going to have you back on that day to have a party in your honor for the Thank release you. of your new book, Bullet in the Chamber. And uh, we'll get into that about how you managed to write as if you were a woman. Do you dress up when you type? <laughs> Great question, I actually, uh, bro. I actually was asked a question uh, at a book signing in, uh, in Belfast, Northern Ireland. A woman in the back raised her hand and said, what do you wear when you write? <laughs> and, uh, I mean, I, I, uh, no, I don't dress any way. I mean, jammies or, you know, nothing special. You know, uh, no Tony, uh, Tony Fenley, who spells her name T-O-N-Y, was nominated for an Edgar Award for her book, The, the Glory Hole Murders, several years ago. And that book was written uh, from... Uh, perspective of a, a like 50 year old gay uh, antique collector in New Orleans and because of the New spelling Orleans. of her name everyone assumed that she was a man mm-hmm. and we're very surprised to find out that she wasn't a, a guy a gay guy what did she wear when she was writing <laughs> uh, I have to ask Tony <laughs> oh I'm surprised you haven't yeah she's very buxom oh yeah uh, there, uh, there was a woman whose name I can't recall what who wrote a private, hard-boiled private eye series as a man. But the giveaway was: there's no hard-boiled private eye. Says the house was taupe. Uh, John, you're gonna be, you, you know, John, you know I have to ask this question, Pearl. What? What do you mean by buxom? She has large breasts, and if you read my brilliant novel, Headlock, in which uh, she does win the Edgar Award. She hasn't won it in real life, but in my novel, Headlock, she wins it for a book about cannibalism in uh, uh, Missouri, which is called Eat Me in St. Louis. (laughs) Lawrence Block uh, has some interesting books in in my novel as well. He has The Burglar Who Had Butterfingers, which is the first product placement in a book title. But, uh, 
That's a little sideline there as I plug my own books. Hey, Howard, Howard. <laughs> yeah. It, it took the entire show before he plugged his book. No, it didn't. <laughs> b- believe me, he had it in at the 37 mark. I, I, I keep track of this stuff because I want a piece of those books. <laughs> Well, I have a bunch at home. Oh, that's Whoa. good. Whoa. He just Mark, got the C. joke. G. Boyer. I have wow. a bunch at home. I can tear some pages out. Would you do that? Yeah. Did he sign the books for you? Yes, he did. Okay. Yeah. I'm, no, I'm happy John's going to be back. You're confirmed. Well, you are confirmed for October, October 1st, right? October 1st, and you, and you know how to get us so you can be here right at 2 o'clock so we can take the entire hour and smash your book. All four of them. <laughs> All of them. No, I mean, he, I swear, shut up. I mean, you see how they treat me in my books, uh, John. So. Yeah, but, yeah see, but we know see, John you. actually writes books. You scribble stuff down. <laughs> scribble stuff down. There's a big difference. Yeah. I, I, and by the way, that uh, the the book you've got out coming out now well, about the cop, the dirty cops. Yeah. And you cut that dirty cop into the the writing. Yeah. What's his name? Uh, uh, Ken Urell. Are you paying the guy? Oh, hell yeah. If he's a corrupt cop, you better believe I'm paying him. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> he's not corrupt John, anymore. John, John, this time went way too fast. Thank you for uh, for sharing your experiences uh, in the late 60s, early 70s. a very important part of our, our history. We will be back with you on October 1st. That's the good news. Burl. Yes. Thank you. Um, I'm Thank looking you. forward to it. It'll Thank be you. fun. I promise you. Yeah, It'll be yeah. even more fun than this. <laughs> oh, come on. Well, maybe not as much, but close. John, have a good day. Hey, bro. <laughs> yeah. Thank you. What, uh, what the heck is next? Magic Matt Allen and the Demons of Deck is live from the Lighten Up Lounge on OutlawRadioUSA.com. <laughs> Yes, of course. Burl Bearer. <laughs> I've known a few writers who were rogues and vagabonds. And I'm Roger Moore. I didn't supply the microphone. Live from the gleaming, state-of-the-art, streamlined studios of Outlaw Radio, nestled in our secret bunker somewhere in the Los Angeles area, the following program is produced by Magic Matt Allen of the Outlaw Radio Network. True crime uncensored. I am the legendary Burl Bear, and the man over there isn't there. <laughs> it's H.G. Wells. It's Claude Rains. It's a wonderful day for us. <laughs> yeah. oh. oh, I am Burl Bear. I'm just, we're here with Mark C.G. Boyer. Hi, Mark. Yeah, I love the fact his mic's down. <laughs> I don't know where Howard is. And we do have uh, John Tadekas on the telephone. We got dancing girls. We got pole dancers. We got balloons. We got party favors celebrating the release today of uh, John's new book. Congratulations, John. Thank you very much. Yeah, the, the dancing girls were a little disappointed that you weren't here. Well, person. I'm disappointed that it's radio so that I can't see them. <laughs> well, I'll uh, have them jiggle in front of the microphone. How much the listener feel? <laughs> yeah, the listener may be feeling a lot. We don't know. We're not in their house. <laughs> but that's well, you can. Business. Yeah, the great thing about radio is you get to use your imagination. Oh, boy, do we need to. <laughs> that's a, a fact of life. Well, I imagine it's, it's always a thrill when a new book comes out. I, I know that feeling myself. Do you still get excited when the books arrive in the mail and you see your name on a book? I do. It's, um, it's uncanny that way, although the other thing that, uh, that arrives is the, the angst about 
promoting it and making sure that the word gets out about it because it's only competing with about 250,000 others that are also coming out at the same time. Nothing depresses an author more than walking into a bookstore. (laughs) Right, exactly. (laughs) Do they still have bookstores? Uh, Yes, there are a few, but one or two left in America. Actually, there's one in, um, uh, where do I live? Santa Clarita. (laughs) There's one there. (laughs) Of Barnes & Ignoble. And uh, I think maybe they carried my books once. <laughs> I, uh, my nephew, Lee Goldberg, uh, who's also an author, went into a Barnes & Noble somewhere on tour to sign stock, and he's signing the books. And they're going, what are you doing defacing those books? <laughs> I'm the author. Well, that doesn't give you the right to sign your name in them. <laughs> well, it, 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 you have to ask permission, because if you sign the book, they can't return it. Yeah, and but there's a it'll sell forty percent faster if it's signed. Really, uh-huh. not for more money. Well, but they, <laughs> but they should they they get the right to say whether you should sign them or not. Yeah, well, they should never send my books back. <laughs> well, when I uh, when I first met you, Burrow, yes, and uh, happened to go into a bookstore when they actually had bookstores. Yeah, I noticed that I saw your books and that you had signed them. Yes. I was wondering if you went from bookstore to bookstore just signing your name. I, I do. I just look. That's all I have to do in my life is spend my time going to bookstores <laughs> and saying, do you have any books by that brilliant author, Burl Bear? And they go, who? Mark, Mark you bought his books just so you could bring them back? Yeah. Yes. <laughs> they wouldn't take them. They're sorry, these are signed. <laughs> Doesn't do you any good. Oh, and also, uh, he, he likes to buy ones with the covers ripped off. <laughs> <laughs> it's a little industry joke. Uh, <laughs> hey, Howard Lapidus just showed up. Yeah. Manager to the star. Good to see you, Howard. <laughs> well, be to be here. It's good for them, too. It's good for the... Uh, what? what? What's going on in your life, Howard? It's leather, Howard. Your pillow is leather. They just brought Howard... Magic Matt Allen just brought Howard a leather pillow, which reminds me, Howard, can you explain to me why Johnny Mathis has in his contract that he wants a football with leather, with real laces on him? It's funny, because Johnny Mathis and I have shared a lawyer for the last 40 years. Yeah, did you share a football? No. No, okay. But I, I could find out the answer to that question in just seconds. Well, please do, because no, that's bothered because me no since 1964. In why? Well, well be- I thought that... Uh, and why are you talking? Why does, why does it, I asked a question. Why does, it, why, why does this bother you? Well, in 1964-65, and uh, John Dedekas wasn't uh, with me at the time, but uh, Quincy Jones's brother, Lloyd, who I was working with, uh, mentioned that Johnny Mathis always insisted on having a football with real leather laces, and he uh, thought that was kind of a peculiar request. Um, I you know it was uh, even the uh, best? Uh, and, and, Mark, I'll, I'll be with you in a minute. <laughs> <laughs> Howard, you are incredible. He I'm is. only late because of you. So, so, so here's the deal. Yeah. Uh, it had to be about 15, 20 years ago, driving somewhere with Genius. Yeah, that's his wife, John. That's what he calls his wife, Genius. And, <laughs> and he's uh, a very wise man. By the, way, by the way, by the way, John, it's Genius, not the Genius. Is the Genius is demeaning? Genius is a nickname. Is a nick? Yeah, thanks. So, so uh, genius and I were somewhere, and uh, the Johnny Mathis song comes on, and I say something about his sexuality. I call him the African Queen. I no, not not quite yet. <laughs> and she goes, "Who said Johnny Mathis is gay?" 
And I said, Johnny, the last I checked. <laughs> Johnny you know, said that. You know, it, it, it's, well, does my mother know this? I, I don't know what your mother knows. <laughs> was the mother was having an affair with Johnny Mathis? No, 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 but the point is, is that this woman, there, there should have been a, a light that went off somewhere. It says, no, stop this now, stop. You know, drop her off and leave. Um, but I didn't do that. I, uh, I moved on. Um, we're celebrating. Other, we're, you know, we got pole dancers and we've got uh, balloons. I did, and- I did say to her, I said, do you not know his nickname is the African Queen? Yeah. And she said, no, she did not know that. Yeah. And then, and then cut to uh, about a year ago, she goes, you know, Nathan Lane plays a really good gay man. <laughs> and I said, um, yeah, yeah, he does um, because he's, he's, he's gay. And uh, she said, no, he's not. You know who else is as long as we're revealing big showbiz secrets? Wonder Woman. What? Yeah, that makes sense. Always okay. <laughs> thought she was pretty hard. Yeah. I would have f- <clears throat> sexually. Uh, uh, no, me neither did I. I was more turned on by Aquaman, which tells me something. I don't. <laughs> that's, that's great, bro. I'll start and finish the Nathan Lane joke later. Okay. Uh, okay. <laughs> I, uh, so, so, so. John, John is here. Yeah, we well, yeah, John's here. He's listening to you. I, I know. I know. He's got and, fed up already. And, and John, you know, I'm, I, I'm sorry. I'm late. I wasn't a couple of weeks ago when you were here, but I'm I'm now late. Uh, because Mark C.G. Boyer, fact-checker to the stars, was responsible for getting Outlaw Radio's our dinner every week. And he not only gets the dinner, he buys the dinner. He's like a fireman. He goes and he buys the dinner, picks out what he wants, brings cooks it back it. here, cooks it, and then serves it to us all. Isn't that sweet of him? Why? Why? why how did he make you late? Because the son of a gun sent me a note with like five seconds before I left the house that says, uh, "I won't be." And, I, and this is pretty near a quote. I won't be. I have uh, plans with my family for dinner, so you're on your own. Yeah. <laughs> Hear oh, that, John? Oh God, the end of the the end of the world. Yeah. Well, no, it's not the end of the world at all. It's just that I I switch into deli mode. Okay. okay well, good. So we get some deli food too, John. At the celebration today for the release of your new book. Yeah, would you like us um, to make you a sandwich? I'm, I'm, I'm living vicariously. Yes, now. you certainly are. None of your business, Mark. You're uh, involved. So, uh, last time you were here, we shouldn't say last time, the previous time you were here, we talked about your brilliant career. And uh, we were amazed, abused, aghast, agog, and thunderstruck by uh, your great stories, etc. And we didn't really get a chance to talk about your your novels, which uh, are, of course, the uh, probably if if one is going to read books where someone's a White House correspondent uh, or in the press corps, was probably going to be the most accurate one available because you've actually done that. Or did, you, or did you make it up the way you wanted to really see it when you were there, and it really wasn't? Well, look, I mean, there's an attack on the White House. I didn't really want that to happen when I was there. Have you seen Designated Survivor? I have. So what do you think? What do you think? Did they they rip you off? No. I mean, it's it's very compelling. I think that, uh, you know, Keeper Sutherland has still got his 24 whisper down. Yeah, you know uh, what? Here he is. He's going to whisper through. You're the only one that said this, and I, I love you for this, John. He's going to whisper through another series. Yes. And yes. he whispers so well. It is a so compelling well. series, though. It's very good so yep, far. Yep, it is. I'm enjoying it. 
I mean, some of the characters are a little, you know, cut from cloth, but it's okay. Well, it's early. I mean, it yeah. gives, you know, with a series, you've got time to develop the characters. Yeah. I, I like it. I enjoy it a great deal. So it, it is uh, fairly accurate, like when the world blows up, this is what... <laughs> <laughs> I, the, the epic, in case you didn't see last week's episode, ladies and gentlemen. So, uh, so, so let's say. What? I, I, what are you weeping about? I'm weeping. I'm, I'm weeping because I mean, dear question. I haven't read John's book, but uh, I did see Designated Survivor. We're talking about similar kind of topics. One, I think we're going to get from John from the inside. This we're seeing from kind of the outside. But what if the damn place did blow up? If it was exactly. That, I mean, that's that's uh, that's something that uh, is, is is becoming more and more of a possibility. And the you know the White House, the Capitol. I mean, those are those are really symbolic. Uh, they're they're symbolic of our democracy. And so there's a psychological body blow that can be delivered by doing that. But of course, terrorism by definition is designed to inflict terror. So if, if Americans, and I'm, I'm not convinced that this can happen, but if people can realize that, you know, the government is not the building, you know, so that even if a building is attacked and destroyed, that doesn't, that is not the same as destroying the actual government. Yeah, the map is not the territory, so that's could they, could they get the buildings now? Well, it depends on the kind of weapon you want to use. I, I, I'm speculating, but I, I'm sure that... Uh, you know, it could be done, but I would imagine that the defense um, capabilities that they have to guard against that are pretty formidable. When you say formidable, uh, describe. Let's say somebody, they try to uh, drive another plane into the Pentagon or into the White House. Well, again, I, I, am, I am not an expert on this kind of stuff, but, uh, you know, there would, be a, there would be a decision that would have to be made at a split second as to whether, let's just say, that a plane takes off from National Airport, which is just across the Potomac, uh, if, by, you know, if, you, if, you're, if your plane is flying 150 to 200 miles an hour and the White House is maybe seven miles away from the from National Airport and it's suddenly taken over, uh, there's got to be a split-second decision on whether or not this is an intentional threat, and if it is, should it be shot down? Uh, so they, these guys got to be watching these planes taking off from National all all day. There you go. There you go. I mean, there was a plane actually that landed on the south lawn of the White House. It was a private plane. Uh, I think it was probably like a Piper Cub or something. I think, if I remember correctly, this goes back. Oh man, About probably. Years. Yeah, at least twenty years. I think uh, Clinton was president. The first Clinton was president. Uh, at that the, time. The first and, Clinton? Uh, what are you assuming? <laughs> uh, it depends on if this is an archived show or right, not. Okay. <laughs> um, perhaps the only Clinton, you never know. But there was a plane that, uh, and if I'm not mistaken, it was a suicide attempt. I don't think it was shot down, but it did crash land on the south lawn of the White House and skidded pretty much up to the building. Uh, and as far as I know, there was not an attempt to take it down. Um, and so I think, if, again, my memory is, is hazy, but I think that there were a lot of questions that were raised at the time about, well, why wasn't it shot down? 
because it could have really done a lot of damage. I don't think it had any kind of, you know, weaponry on board, but, um, you know, it's scary. It's scary. One of the issues with, uh, with shooting it down is where is the plane at the time you shoot it? Are you going to create uh, a whole host of casualties in the... Uh, in neighborhood the general population <laughs> if the parts crash land on people's houses or exactly on and i think that's probably why you know there there could already have been cases where you know somebody you know took the the whatever weapon they were using off safety and were ready to pull the trigger to bring down the plane and you know i think i think that there's a lot of a lot of um, patience that's been involved uh, where somebody with a hair trigger, you know, could have caused, as you suggest, even more of a problem than uh, uh, than if they'd let it go. Ooh, I remember the uh, the guy that kind of got into the White House not all that long ago. Uh, right. And what a, what a, I was talking to Fred Wolfson, who used to do the security at the White House back during the Reagan administration. And he was cracking up laughing about this. And I said, what, what, what was going on? He says, well, he says, what, what they have, actually, at the White House now is ADT. And someone simply turned it off because it was irritating that they get these little bings and, you know, pings <laughs> when, when, you know, people cross these little places where, you know, they have motion detectors. It was, they found it irritating. And so they turned it off. Yeah, well, which is more irritating, I suppose, right? Yeah, well, what's this... Uh, we're getting here. I don't know what that is. It's very exciting. <laughs> I said we can turn that off. So uh, uh, how did you decide or why did you decide, and was it a challenge for you, to make your main character, and I know you've been asked what do you wear when you're typing, uh, your main character is a female, <laughs> and uh, as we uh, discussed previously, it's difficult for some people to uh, write the opposite gender. You know, that's, I, I, I appreciate the question, and I do get it quite a bit. I'm a baby boomer, and I write as a millennial, and uh, that in itself is probably a turnoff to a lot of people who say, well, you know, you can't, you know, how can we expect that you're going to get it right? And that's a fair question. Um, I mean, and, and there's a, I'll, I'll try not to give you the long answer, but I can tell you that I first started writing as a woman maybe 20 years ago, and it was not, you know, calculated to be, you know, some sort of a neat branding kind of thing. It was just, when when I started to play with fiction, someone said you should write in a way that stretches you, that's not, you know, the way you normally write. And so I, you know, I tried doing it as a woman and discovered that it wasn't as difficult as I thought because emotions really aren't gender specific. Everybody's got them. It's just that in my experience, women are more nuanced and more articulate in the way they express them. And so yes. I basically, I, you know, I am probably my character that, you know, she is different. She, she expresses herself differently. And then I can I can tell you that I've, I've gotten a little bit more clarity about that. I mean, the way I was able to do it is that, you know, I was, a I was at CNN for 25 years, and during that time, you know, year after year, there were interns in their 20s cycling through, and they would tell me their stories about their boyfriends and their careers and their parents and I would just listen and embed the stories in my right. psyche. So when it came time to writing, I had those voices. Um, my agent is a woman. My beta readers. My are mom women. is a woman. How about that? Well, exactly. But mm. I mean, the point is, is that I've gotten feedback mom? from 
I've gotten feedback from women who have read the manuscript and who've told me what works and what doesn't. What then, uh, what what doesn't work? <laughs> well, I'll give you one example. Um, uh, my first novel, Fast Track, went through 14 major revisions. It took me 10 years to find the agent that I've got, and near. You know, near the end of the process, when I finally was getting close to hitting paper, I took the manuscript to a book club that met in my neighborhood. And these women read it over the summer and then let me sit in on their critique. So I'm listening to 25 women take my novel apart. And uh, one, I learned a number of things. One is that I had, you know, way too much going on, too many subplots that I was able to get rid of and I could change my novel into a 150, from a 150,000 word mishmash mm-hmm. into a 75,000 word mystery novel. Yeah, but one specific <laughs> thing that they said that really helped me understand with was I had a line of dialogue where my character said, I'll just jump in the shower and I'll be right there. And these women said, we do not jump into the shower. We savor the experience. And so, well, you know, come on, I'm a guy. I jump in the shower. Um, but women don't. Listen to what women tell you. You learn a lot about the opposite sex, and I think that makes you a better person. Look, when it's time to go to a movie, I throw on a baseball cap and we're gone. No. <laughs> <laughs> no one's going to see you in the dark theater anyway. It doesn't, doesn't work that way. Yeah, Yeah, but, uh, you know, that's, it's a whole different way of thinking. And, uh, you know, I think that viva la différence, you know, it's, it's He's speaking French, by the way. Well, you you have touched on one of the the deep, dark secrets of writers, and that is listening. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Yeah, but you're you're, you're going for a whole other gender. You must have made some interesting mistakes that you just didn't think of. Uh, uh, Outside of just jumping jumping in the shower, I like. I like that one. You've got to have more like that. Well, I'll give you another example. Um, there was a line that I had in, um, gee, I can't remember, I think it was, I can't remember which novel it was. The, either the, I don't think it's the one that's coming out now. I think it was Troubled Water, which is the one right before this. And my character, Lark Chadwick, she's a reporter. She's working a serial killer story. And um, one of the victims, she's interviewing a friend of one of the victims who's a teenage girl. So... She's at the high school interviewing this, uh, you know, this teenage girl, and um, one of the questions is she's trying to decide if the victim had had sex with the boyfriend who is a suspect. Mm. And um, she says to the, uh, she asks the question to this teenage girl, "Did they do the big nasty?" <laughs> I know, I know, and and, and every woman read that line said no I would not say that no. and uh, and so um, you know I had heard a woman use that term but the woman was not a young woman who said that and so you know I so you talk to these women and you say well what would be a better way of saying and we came up with something I can't remember exactly the line we used maybe it was were they an item or did they do it or you know something but the big man like a rusty spring door Oh, that's right. There was a big nasty. <laughs> I thought so. We're going to take a 60-second break to discuss the best way of saying nasty. <laughs> we'll be right, right back. 
back with John Tadakis and talking about his brand new novel, Where He Gets to Be a Woman. We'll be right back. than children who kill. The mother who made them do it. Mom said kill. The mother, Barbara Opal, promised her 14-year-old daughter a brand new dirt bike if she and her little friends would murder her employer. I'll tell you one thing. The kid never got the dirt bike. Mom, Mom said, said kill, kill by legendary true crime writer Burl Bear. Available now wherever fine books are sold. From Pinnacle, true crime, Mom said Kill. Can I find out how many Jew boys are in the audience? What the hell are you talking about? I want to know if I got Jews in the audience. They like me. <laughs> <laughs> Don't worry. We'll have some shipped in. guest, John Tadekas, formerly of Christian Broadcast Network and of uh, CNN and close personal friend of Wolf Blitzer and our close personal friend too because we're having a big celebration of the release today of his brand new novel which is called Bullet in the Chamber. It's from Strategic Media Books which is a fine outfit run by our buddy Ron Chepsik. How about why that? Is that? Why is this happening on Saturday? Well, it's a good day, is it? <laughs> oh, not a Tuesday. <laughs> yes, why is that, John? See? John, you oh, there? Oh, John. <laughs> Hello, John. Yes. Uh, why is the book coming out on a Saturday and not a Tuesday? I don't know. <laughs> we got that covered. <laughs> Next. <laughs> so there you were, my new business. Today, that was important. Maybe it's the date that's important. Yeah. Whatever it is, is you can get it right now. Called yeah. Bullet in the Chamber. Once again, starring the beautiful and talented. Is she beautiful and talented? We know she's talented. Is she good looking? Uh, oh, you're, totally. You're, she's yes. a fox. Totally a fox. Totally a fox. Can you, can you set us up for a date? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh, hey, look, Mark Boyer, let me ask you something. Yes, okay? sir. 
if the date were standing in front of you. Yes. <laughs> going, Mark, oh, take me, oh, take me. Yes, yes, yes. What would you do? Um, you would I run, would, uh, you son I of would, a gun. I would shoe you. Yes, you would. <laughs> yeah. Shoe you, so shoe don't, you. Don't sit there and... Let me ask, ask you a question. Don't ask our <laughs> guest. <laughs> don't ask our guest to get you laid. <laughs> Maybe that's the term they use, was, was she getting laid? Maybe that's what the... There you go. That, that would work. Yeah. Usually does. Uh, <laughs> meanwhile, well, back to the ranch. Uh, so when when you decided to create this character who has become very popular, this uh, Lark Chadwick, uh, mm -hmm. how'd you come up with the name? Were you like smoking larks? You know, that's a, that's another good question, and I do not know the answer to where I got the first name Lark. I have no idea where that came from. The last name Chadwick is actually Chadwick. It's, I named Chadwick, Illinois. Because Chadwick, Illinois, was where I was going. To, I was I was on a train mm -hmm. uh, in 1959, and the, I was in the dome car watching the tracks ahead of us. And uh, a car uh, just came out of nowhere, went onto the tracks. We hit it, Ooh. killed everybody in the car. Oh my God! And the first the first novel I wrote, Fast Track, uh, deals with. A woman who tries to figure out uh, what it was that caused the crash that killed her parents uh, in a car train collision. So, uh, Lark Chadwick is named after Chadwick, Illinois. Oh, did they ever find out why the people put their car on the railroad track? Well, in, in real life, uh, as near as I can tell, because I've been back to that crossing, it comes at, a, it comes at the, uh, the there, there are no gates. And it comes at an oblique angle. And the train had come just clear to curve. It was going 90 miles an hour. And my, it was at night. And my hunch is that they never, you know, they didn't see the, the, even the crossing in time. Because oh. the car had come and had just turned a corner onto that road. And, uh, uh, and they probably even didn't realize that there was a, a, a crossing. And they just strayed right onto the track at the absolute worst possible time. So they probably never even knew what hit them. Oh. I don't know what hit me. I'm trying to figure out, are you hearing the progression in the background? Am I the only one hearing I'm hearing, I'm hearing something. Yeah, Those must the be weirdest. the dancing girls. I thought maybe it was the dancing girls too, but they yeah. don't have their disco There's a great deal of percussion in the background. It's, it's, a, it's there, it's annoying. Um, it's almost as annoying as listening to Burl, so I'll pick it up from here. Uh, <laughs> What was that? I don't, no, no. I don't know. I think the girls got into a fight over who gets that G-string. <laughs> it's a common problem here at LR Radio. <laughs> Isn't the first time, trust me. <laughs> this is, we've seen some pretty strange things on the radio out here. So, yeah. Well, I can, I can tell you uh, with, with some degree of authority that, that my protagonist, Lark Chadwick, would be aghast because one of the things that really annoys her is how women are objectified and especially her because she's you know she's a 10 but she wears baggy sweaters and is really uncomfortable with that whole dynamic and really wants to be loved for her mind instead of her body so how do we and know it she doesn't always I, work out that how way. do we know she's a 10 he describes because her I created it. her. <laughs> oh, so you created a 10 in your Kind of like that movie Weird Science. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So, so you, what, is a, what is a perfect 10? 
Oh, this is not the Howard Stern show, is it? <laughs> no, it's not. It's far from it. I'm not going there. All right. No, no, no. no. Now, maybe, maybe his idea of a yeah, perfect ten is four foot all, three, three hundred twenty-five pounds. I'm, I'm, I, I might run for president someday, and those tapes will come back to haunt. <laughs> okay, uh, let me ask you a question. Yeah. What What in your mind is a perfect ten? <laughs> okay, Howard, that's enough. No. It's a damn well a legitimate question, and it's not a stern-ass question. I would never do that. He does what he does, and we do what we do. Don't don't do that. It's a fair question, but you see, beauty is in the mind of the holder, and uh, uh, I will will tell you that when it comes right down to it, sure, do looks count? You bet they do. But um, I've had much better conversations with women. Well, there's a great interview with uh, Dustin Hoffman, talking about Tootsie, and the bottom line was that Tootsie, you know, he wanted to be, he wanted to make a woman, a a movie in which he plays a woman, and the thing that was so distressing to him is that he thinks, he thought that, you know, Tootsie was, you know, an interesting person, but because of the way she looked, he would not have given her the time of day at a party, and he actually started to cry in the interview, and he said, Tootsie for me was not you know, was not a comedy because it was sad that interesting women who don't necessarily look the part of what a 10 is uh, are often passed over by guys who could actually learn something by, by talking to, to those people too. So in my experience, you know, there have been a lot of quote-unquote 10s who ne- can't necessarily can carry a conversation. But there are a lot of women who may be, you know, fours and fives, as far as uh, Howard Stern is concerned, who are tens and even twelves when it comes to intelligence and interest. And I'd much rather spend time with someone who's got a head and a mind and, and rather than, you know, a rat. Okay, well, why don't we put, put aside Howard Stern, because... because it to to understand what he's doing is a, is a is a is another show and that's not the one we're doing. But the, my question is: is you made her a ten, but she's a schlubby ten? Well, she's uncomfortable with it because of the way she's treated. So therefore, the big sweaters and and she hides herself. So she's right. just so we've got body shaming involved here. That's right. There's there's a there's you know internally she's uncomfortable with. You know the kind of a uh, the kind of a, uh, attention that she gets. How do you, as a man, and she's not comfortable in her own? Skin. How do you, as a man, find that voice? I ask. I look. I uh, there are a lot of very attractive women I work with, and I ask them those questions. I remember asking one woman. I said, "Guys must be coming onto you all the time," and and uh, this particular woman said, "You know, I can tell in the first twenty five seconds whether I'm interested or not or not." And usually I'm not. And so so I guess what I'm saying is I learned that voice because I asked questions uh, about what it was like to be a woman, especially an attractive woman. Yeah, it's not easy. There's a, a TED Talk that I, I watched for this woman who you see her in a lot of, of print ads. Uh, beautiful 
She's got that. She said she won the genetic lottery, and she comes out on stage dressed so hot. She's got the short mm-hmm. skirts. She's got the high heels. And people, she goes, I know right now the women in the audience hate me. She says, yeah. so, she says, so let me do this. And she had her clothes designed in such a way that she's just with a few little alterations. She wraps this thing around her. Now she's got a long, you know, a long skirt on all the way down to her ankles, and the top is not so, you know, revealing. And she changes her hair a little bit. Because now, now you're more comfortable with me. And she, <laughs> she says, I won the genetic lottery, which means I get to do ads where I stand and with one leg behind me, raised up, looking back at my invisible imaginary friends. <laughs> you always see that pose in the ads. And she talked about, you know, the challenges of actually of being that, you know, winning the genetic lottery. Right. That's right. And it's, it's a, it really is a burden for, you know, a lot of women and because they want to be taken and, uh, and often guys don't because, you know, we as guys, and I, I hate to generalize because I know plenty of exceptions to the rule, but, you know, more often than not, women are objectified, they are uh, uh, demeaned uh, if they don't look a certain way, and then because they look, look a certain way, you know, it's assumed that they're sort of a bimbo and, you know, not really that bright. And it's just, you know, it is... I have that problem the, because I'm so good-looking, women often assume I'm an idiot. There, there we go. Hey, hey, John, how do you get into character? Uh, I'm not sure what what you mean by that. Oh, you I'm know damn actor. well what I mean. <laughs> no, no, I mean, you have to get your mind, but if you're writing in her voice... Well, look, I think part of it is that I really, and I, and I, I don't know, I don't want this to come across the wrong way, but I feel that because of the women I've I have in my life who are friends, I think that I've gotten a lot of empathy. I, I, I'm able to sympathize and empathize with them so that it really has, I've internalized a lot of, I mean, I, because I interact with women so much, um, it's important to me to be sensitive to, you know, what, how, they, how I might be coming across to them. And so I don't know if it involves so much being in character as it is just being who I am. And I don't, I, you know, feel free to follow up. If I I, I may, are you a gay man or a straight man? I am a straight man, and that's a fair question. Um, Although Carol Costello, who I worked with for a long time in Atlanta, um, she said, you have a very well-developed female side. Mm -hmm. And I said... um, is that a good thing? Yeah. Well, that's excellent. You yeah. know, because apparently there's some sort of emotional dimension right. that I've got that a lot of guys don't. It might be a hormonal thing. Uh, I was uh, stupidly volunteered in an experiment at UCLA Medical Center about 40 years ago, where uh, I never volunteer for experiments, where they pumped me full of Clomid, which is a synthetic female hormone. Mm-hmm. 29 days on, 5 days off, 29 days on, 5 days off. <laughs> and... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I take it at eight in the morning, and by ten a.m., I'm I'm all emotional, <laughs> looking at pictures of babies. And your inspiration for that was financial. Yeah. yeah. Uh, how much? How much did they pay you for that? Not a damn thing. And why did you do that? Because I was, you know, me. I'm a compulsive people pleaser. Oh yeah, that. Yeah. 
so. Well, how did it? How did it? How did it affect you? I'll tell you exactly what what happened. What they were studying is testosterone rebound effect. So, by uh, I take it at eight in the morning. By ten or eleven, I'm very emotional, very sensitive. Uh, I'm watching, you know, Mrs. Miniver. I'm kind of falling for uh, Walter Pigeon. Uh, then at four o'clock in the afternoon, I want to roll up a pack of Luckies in my sleeve and go out and beat up a biker because I got the <laughs> testosterone rebound effect. Uh, and it just got stronger and stronger on both the ends of the spectrum. If I went into a party or something where there's a bunch of guys or, you know, over here yakking and a bunch of women over there yakking, I would go over where the women were because I could communicate with them and the men seemed so shallow. <laughs> so, you're, oh, so, so, boy, so officially, that's... now we, we now know officially that you're a gay communist. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not gay, I'm just versatile. I'd rather he be yeah. gay than a commie. Yes. <laughs> well, I mean, I, I tend to agree with you, and I haven't gone through any kind of hormonal stuff, but uh, I have to be honest, I find women far more interesting, far more interesting. than most guys. Yeah. yeah. Uh, you can have some conversations where you feel connected to your solar plexus. <laughs> totally. Have you yeah. Ever, have you ever taken your character away from the typewriter and into the world? Oh, no, I haven't. I, I don't have that kind of courage. I think that's a that'll great be, you gotta idea. That'll change your Maybe. clothes. I mean, I think just if you walked out with your mind in that mindset of the character. Well, I'd have to shave the beard. Well, I don't mean you have to look like the character. I mean, just in your mind of going out in, in public and pretending that you're still writing, that you are this character. Uh, you know what, though? I think I am that character. Yeah, it's probably an aspect really of your character. What's that? An aspect of your character. So, so, so are, yeah. they, are we then still led to have to believe that your character is a full-fledged woman and thinks and, and, and reacts like a, a woman would? Or, well, or I is, mean, this, is I, this a figment of your a male imagination? Well, no, he's well, it, done research. It is, but, I'm, but, hey, but whoa, 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 I'm asking the but, question. Right. Uh, <laughs> but remember, I've, I've gotten a lot of feedback from women before the books are published, so... Um, you know, any mistakes, anything that I don't get, you know, they'll tell me. Um, so, I don't know. I, I, um... Does she have sex in the books? Uh, you know, she's... The backstory uh, to get the, steer, the series started, she's sexually assaulted by her English professor in her senior year at the University of Wisconsin. How did you, re how did you recreate that? I didn't because it's backstory. It's uh, I actually when I wrote early drafts, I actually wrote it, and that was where the book was going to begin. And it just it was that wasn't what the book was about. And so there's a flashback of it way farther in that you know doesn't explore it. So it's part of her psyche, but it's not something that I've dwelt on in any particular scenes. Although I may in the future. Hmm. One of the things that I've noticed... As Mark Boyer has a question for um, you. You bring um, a lot of your personal tragedies into the material. Do you find it cathartic? Oh, yes. I mean, my, my sister killed herself 35 years ago, and so the first chapter of Fast Track is basically her carbon monoxide overdose, or, uh, uh, or carbon monoxide hmm. um, In the uh, garage death. with the door In, shut. There you go. And... Yeah. Uh, that was cathartic, and then uh, the fourth novel, Bullet in the Chamber, that's just out today, fictionalizes one of the subplots has to do with my son's uh, fatal overdose, heroin overdose, five years ago, and uh, and so 
you know, that was a catharsis. And if I can just say one more quick thing, because this fits in with writing as a woman, you know, I've been writing as a woman for, you know, 20 years, but it wasn't until I went through grief counseling. And I was, while I was going through grief counseling, I was writing Full in the Chamber that just came out. And one of the bits of clarification, inner clarification that I got is that I never went through grief counseling when my sister died, but when my son died, I did. I went through two years of it, and of course, all the stuff that, come, that mm-hmm. happened 30 years ago comes up too. One of the things I realized is that I write as a woman partly because I wanted to create a woman who uh, made the kind of choices that I wish my sister had made. How much of your sister is in Lark? <laughs> Not really. Uh, it's real. Lark is really more know me, and so this is what she would. This is what I'd be like if I were a woman. I think. So what are those? Uh, sister, what, what are those changes you wished your sister would have made? Oh, that's a fabulous question. I wish that she had been. I, she had the the capability of being a surgeon, and instead she listened to the voices that told her well, this wouldn't be looking good if, you know, you're a surgeon and I'm not. And so she just, you know, she just um, um, made choices that that, um, please, you know, the guy in her life. And uh, and it just, it it caused her own self-worth to atrophy, to to, uh, go away. And so, you know, she didn't, have the courage to stand up to the guy and say, you know, I'm moving on, and I'm going to take care of me first, and then, you know, if there's somebody who can keep up with me, then that'll be great. But, you know, she kept being held back, and pretty soon you start holding yourself back. You know, yeah. you know that in all suicides there's a, you know, a severe chemical imbalance and an illness. Uh, yes. what, was, what was hers? I think, I mean, she was diagnosed as schizophrenic. Um, I think, I mean, this was 1980. I think she was probably bipolar, but I don't think they knew it at the time. Mm. So she didn't have any medicine for it or anything. Just out of curiosity, curiosity, what was the month in 1980? uh, It was October, October 11th, 1980. Okay. Why is the month significant? Because I lost somebody the same exact way, same year. I was just wondering how close it was. Oh, my goodness. Yeah, I'm so way. sorry. Yep. Yeah. No. So, so yeah. I, this, this is why the questioning. But, but yeah, I, I, there's a lot of. Uh, I, I have a, a question, lot of empathy though. here, but it comes back to the book. What was she? Twenty eight, twenty nine years old. Where, uh, My sister was thirty nine, okay. but uh, you know, I, but young, young. Now, yeah. I, I have a, a grief question for you. Maybe an uncomfortable sure. topic, but Not at something all. we yeah. all have to deal with. Is, uh, were you able to grieve when your sister passed away? Were you able to grieve when your son passed away? Well, I mean, I, I guess it, de- it depends on what your definition of grief is. I'm try, sure. Um, but I, I, I don't think that I... I don't know. I'd have, to, that's, I'd have to think about the one about my sister. I definitely grieve, but I know that I, I cried more about my sister... Since my son died, and yeah, we kind of I, flash back on things. Residual exactly, grief. and I think that the the probably the 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 biggest breakthrough as far as my son's death is that I mean crying. I mean it's not a guy thing. Guys don't cry. 
um, we've got anger nailed. But, uh, you know, being able to try, one of the things I've discovered is that that's such a safety valve. Because if you keep it inside, it festers mm-hmm. and you get corro- it's corrosive. And so um, a good pry is like a, you know, a, 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 a squall, a thunderstorm that passes through. It creates a lot of emotional turmoil. But when it goes away, the air is fresh and you can look at life you know, in a much clear-eyed, more clear-eyed I'm one of those guys, I cry in color cartoons and newsreels. You know, <laughs> if there's a sentimental chick flick, I'm, you know, I'm sobbing all over Good the Kleenex. Good for you. I'm sobbing Good all over you. the Kleenex. However, I, when my parents died, I couldn't cry. Mm-hmm. When my sister died, I couldn't cry. Yeah. And then... Couldn't, a, couldn't Burler wouldn't. Well, I didn't try to stop myself. I think, why aren't I crying? And then well, you la- know, last year, that- a friend of mine that I used to work with suddenly mm-hmm. died, and I sobbed a bit. It was think it was like leftover crying from yeah. my yeah. parents and you know my sister. Yeah. My mother died two years ago. I got up there and I did ten minutes of stand up. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> did anyone get a recipe for uh, no, seriously, seriously, I killed by the way twice. Well, I but- mean, grief is so complex. There's no one right way to do it, and there's no. Uh, uh, length, appropriate length of time for grief. I mean, grief is so personal. Hmm. Yeah, it is certainly. But, yeah, but is. you say guys don't cry. Go back to that. I, I, I think, well, I, I think I mean, you're totally wrong. Well, well, I am because I know guys cry, but I also know that it is widely considered to be weak. You know, it's widely considered to be weakness. I think we've passed yeah, that. If you don't we? stop crying, I'll give you something to cry for. Oh, there you are. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, right. yeah, yeah why, what, what do you tell boy. a woman with two black eyes? Nothing. You already told her twice. Thank you. Good night. <laughs> Mr. Ake is next. Enjoy the meal. Good night. Well, well you just yeah. lost half your audience. <laughs> well, we'll get to it in a minute. He lost half his audience on hello. That's why he, he brought me in. <laughs> yeah, you're a real confidence builder. Uh, Who, me? <laughs> Absolutely not. I'll I'll do whatever I can do to tear your confidence down. Yeah, thanks a lot. <laughs> if it's bad enough being an author, as you know, I mean, I haven't had so much rejection since I was in high school. There well, you, you go. You chose it, and so did yeah. so did John. And, and John's now writing fiction, which and he's got a female character to to, to uh, the, his lead character is a female. He's a male writing a female character, which I find extraordinarily fascinating. And I'm now going to read the books because I want to bust them, and I'm going to have uh, <laughs> females in my life try and bust you. Okay, fair enough. I know you want that. I, I know, because you think, you, you think, you think, oh, you got Mr. It down, Smarty yeah. Pants, you've got us all beat. But we're gonna we're going to find something. Yeah. Well, well I, you probably won't have to look very far. I mean, I, I, I feel I can always learn and, and uh, be a better writer, learn from uh, mistakes I've made. So, uh, I, But I, I feel that... You know, there's there's an authenticity there that has resonated with women who have read the book, but uh, but that you're not going to look. You know this. You're not going to please everybody. You're always, you know, if you're looking for a hundred percent, you know, adulation and uh, and success, it ain't going to happen. Well, you so, want, don't, don't read your reviews on Amazon. Oh, oh no, please. <laughs> but you want half of them to love you. You want half of them to hate you. If they're in the middle, yeah. you don't want them at all. Listen. <laughs> Well, your book is called uh, what's the Bullet in the Chamber? Bullet in the Chamber, and it and it uh, is on sale as of today. Correct? That's correct. Huh? Yeah, I think I mentioned this last week, but not everyone listens every week, and people have a right to know this. It's, it's equally difficult for a woman to write as if they were a man. And right. uh, the hard-boiled detective who said, "Yeah, I saw the house; it was taupe." <laughs> 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 right. 
<laughs> and yeah. that was a dead giveaway, right? <laughs> exactly. And, and I, I lead a writing workshop on how to write in the voice of the opposite sex. So, uh, you know, it can be done because we, you know, if you're writing a novel, chances are it's going to be populated with, you know, members of both sexes. So there are some, you know, tricks of the trade to, to try to make your your uh, voices more authentic. Yeah, one, of, one of them is listening a lot. I didn't, uh, speaking of listening, I did not hear the word tope until somewhere in between my second marriage. Mm. <laughs> right. Yeah, never heard. Tope I, is not a word that gets thrown around no, a lot when guys are watching locker, football. In the locker room, <laughs> it's not a locker room word. No. Exactly. Pass the tope <laughs> helmet, if you would. Please. <laughs> <laughs> the tope helmet. Yeah. 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 Have you ever run across uh, Janet Ivanovich? Um, I have. She was. I was actually at uh, uh, Killer Nashville uh, uh recently not was it killer nashville she was at a conference i was at but i've, I've only seen her from a distance mark, mark why, do we, why do we care he's a big janet ivanovich fan uh yeah uh, stephanie plum and why do we care because uh she is effectively a ad hoc detective uh going through trying to solve various uh, capers crimes that, uh, that's, that's all great. Still coming to the why do we care part? Because she <laughs> writes, um, she writes some very specific male characters. Okay, in that Stephanie's makes sense. Life. I'm glad you brought it. Well, around. does she pull it off? Do you think she pulls uh, it off? Yeah, I think so. Now, of course, yeah. now I got to put in a family plug. Her other series, which is the Fox and O'Hare series, is co-written with my nephew Lee Goldberg. <laughs> Again with the Lee Goldberg. That's my nephew. Yeah. If you don't see, yeah. uh, you know, if you don't say Lee Goldberg's name once a week. I'll say it twice this week because I was looking at a book that I had on my shelf that was called Police Procedures and something or others. You know, it's a reference book if you're writing, you know, and you want to write accurately about police procedures. And so I have a library, this kind of stuff for what I do. And I just noticed for the first time that the book was had a, what, an endorsement quote from, uh, from Lee. And I didn't even notice that until just the other day. Isn't that fascinating? I just realized I, that need, that, I, need, that, I need that police procedures book. You do? To write the... Uh, uh, my, my 89 Days with Paul Abdul? I'm going to need, I'm going to need some cop reference there. Uh, I have some mental health books I could lend you. Oh, I have many of those. No shortage of... So, um, what, is, uh, what does your main character bring to the, her investigations? Um, that wouldn't that be others, there otherwise. Other surrounding characters don't. Whoa, that's an excellent question. I think, well, she's, she's incredibly curious. And I think that there's a, a certain degree of skepticism that she's got, too. Um, and, you know, a certain degree of inner strength. So that there's, you know, she's, she, anybody who's trying to knock her off the game, um, you know, she's got a, a tremendous ability to recover from that. Not necessarily to resist it, but to be able to recover from it. So, you know, she's curious, she's tenacious. Um, I think those are some of the characteristics that she's got. What does she look like? You know, when I first wrote Fast Track, I, you mentioned Linda Carter. That's who I had in mind when I was writing it. Um, she's, uh, uh, you know, she's, uh, my character is buxom, good-looking, brunette, and, uh, you know, has spins kind of... spins around in circles or clothes change. Well, no, not that. But, uh, <laughs> and and, and is, it, does she have, we, we kind of touched on this before, but does she have a sex life? Yes. Uh, she's, you, you did bring that up, and we got, we got diverted, but uh, she does. 
she's but she's very picky, I guess you could say, and she doesn't give her heart away or her body away easily. And so um, that is something that is going to be addressed in Bullet in the Chamber um, so that you'll really get a sense of her inner workings um, because I think that she's got a lot of discernment and yet, you know, she, she still makes, um, she still gets it wrong. And I think that that's pretty true to life too. There are a lot of women I know who are really trying to live their lives in a way that will... Aggravate you know, men. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> that will make men's life all living hell. Sorry to do that to you, but it was just there. I, I had to. I'm sorry. That's yeah. not exactly where I was going. I know. But, uh, <laughs> it wasn't well, an error on our part. <laughs> we apologize. <laughs> Bullet in the Chamber, the latest uh, episode. And you don't have to read them in order in order to enjoy the books. You can pick up the series uh, anywhere along How the many line. in the series now? Uh, what, four? Well, it's, it's, it's four right now, but I got the fifth one in my head, and I'll start writing that. And in one of these, I can assure you that she's going to have a health crisis. Well, that's entirely possible. So she's a a straight woman. Is that what you're saying? Yeah, yeah. How do we know that? (laughs) Because she has sex with men. You know, she's never really been challenged that that way. Yeah, well, they're just versatile. <laughs> They're versatile. So strategic, strategic media books, which uh, is well known for having books that are strategic and media. <laughs> and you're in good company with the, the other authors they have there. Uh, okay, we got this all figured out now. So uh, I can just go on Amazon right now. Or Barnes and Noble or Strategic Media site. And I can order this book. And paperback yeah. and ebook both? But I don't. It's, feel, uh, I don't it's not pay. quite. It's not in an ebook yet, but they're going to move it up. Uh, so it's soon, and also an audio book. Uh, uh, a voiceover artist, uh, Suzanne Serretta, is uh, is recording it now, and it should be available as an audio book within the next month or so. Ooh, good deal. I like the audio book uh, thing a lot. Yeah. You buy my audio books too, Howard. I don't buy any of your books, bro. Why, <laughs> would, I, why, why should you start now? When I, should, when I start buying your books. Yeah, you'll let me know. Uh, you give me your books. <laughs> you give me a lot of support <laughs> here, John. Well, you yeah. have several no, no. hundred in the trunk. You just give them. No, I don't give them. Away. I don't even have copies of my own books. How about that? Hey, John, always a pleasure having you here. Thank you. Yes. <laughs> Thank John you. Another good show with John. We just want you to say this was the best interview you had for this book on the day the book came out. <laughs> well, it was, good. it was good for me. Was it good for you? Oh, yeah. I thought it was great. <laughs> Thank you so much. Pull <laughs> in the chamber. Buy and read it. Believe it. Howard, ask me a question. I will. Hey, Pearl. Yeah. What's next? Magic Matt Allen and the Demons of Decadence, live at the Lighten Up Lounge on OutlawRadioUSA.com.